Evening, everybody. How are we doing? Great. Didn't my mom do such a good job there with the prayers? <laughs> huh? God bless her. Uh, thank you guys for being here. As the slide above would allude to, we are in the middle of a series called What Lies Beneath. We're trying to identify the eight hallmarks of healthy living. What are the pieces and the postures and the practices that we take on? Should we want to live rooted and established, healthy lives? And, and I'm trying to do my best. Uh, I wasn't here for the past few weeks. Well, I was here two weeks ago. Two of the last three weeks, I was not here. So I'm a little behind in this series right now. But it's good to be back with you all tonight. Last weekend, I... Uh, Went with my, my, my honey over here to Hibbing for a little romantic getaway. A lot of fake news out there will tell you that you need to go to Paris or Fiji, but it gets hot in Hibbing. Let me tell you, it gets, <laughs> it gets hot pretty quickly. Or so we were told. We didn't make it there uh, very long, actually. We were there for about, well, we drove up. We stopped for dinner. We purchased a meal. And then we, we kind of were compelled by that keeping up with the Keller's spirit, and we decided to buy a home after dinner. And so we went straight back to Minneapolis the next day, because that means we have to sell our present house, which is a job that is easier said than done, especially if you have two kids who are less than clean, two kids whose, whose you know, ideal of hygiene is pouring toothpaste on the counter and rubbing their teeth in it. Like, that's how they would go about keeping, yeah, do what you got to do, right, Tyler? So from Monday or Sunday to today, we've been cleaning and burning and weeping and drinking, everything. We've been doing a little bit of everything just to keep our heads above water and just sat down for the first time this morning to actually think about, we should, I need something to say tonight. Should I be standing up in front of you? Meg, you texted me earlier today. Never got around to that. This is why, okay? This is a long explanation. Sorry for that. <laughs> This afternoon, actually, we had our first open house. House went live in the market two days ago. Has anybody had an open house before you're selling your house? I know it's not a unique experience or anything, but it is kind of a vulnerable one all the same. From 1.30 to 3.30 day, we swung our doors of our house wide open, and whoever was out there, the general public, they just walked on through. And it was interesting, because as I was thinking about it, obviously not there, not knowing who's coming in and who's coming out, I found myself getting all kinds of anxious and for reasons that I did not expect. I wasn't anxious per se about whether or not our house would actually sell, but I was more so anxious about what it is that these strangers would see. I don't know why, but I started to think about if they come in, would they see the floor that Ryan Corcoran and I assembled way too confidently after only watching one YouTube video. Separation all over the place. Would they see the wall that we recently painted over, trying to get rid of some smudges, not knowing that we were lifting up some tape? Would they see my real estate agent's religious decor that makes a real pretty picture, but kind of dicey theology? What, what exactly would they see? Would they judge me for my Nicholas Sparks books? I'm not ashamed of those books. What would they see when they walk through my house? And at, at the end of the day, after the critique and they assess every inch and every corner, after they look at all of the cracks that are inside of my house, after they see everything that is wrong, will they still want to claim it as theirs because they believe that it is right? I've been thinking about that whenever I've been inside of my house this past week, and I've been thinking about that whenever I come inside of this house since I was a kid. 
it's the same question, different experiences. Every time I come into a church, even as a pastor, somewhere in the back of my mind, sometimes more so on the front of my mind, it is that question of, once God sees all of my cracks, all of the smears and the smudges, all of the dust that is piled up in the corners, all of the addictions that I cannot quit, the habits that have a hold on me, once God sees all that is wrong with me, will God still want to claim me in spite of my cracks? Will God still want to be with me in spite of my cracks? For 2,000 years, Christians have been wondering, will God still claim me in spite of all of my cracks? And for 2,000 years, God has been wondering, will you? Will you? In one of the first weeks of this series, we talked about the importance of going into yourself, of knowing thyself, of becoming people who are self-aware knowing what's happening underneath, being intentional about the time that we devote to going underneath the surface of things. Self-awareness is step one. Self-acceptance is step two. For these final two weeks of the series, we want to talk about um, not just uh, habits of healthy human beings, but we want to get specific for our people here and say, what are healthy habits of Christians? Or more importantly, what are healthy concepts that we can claim and cling to that promote and foster and form us into people who are healthy and rooted and established in Christ as we claim to be. And that's easier said than done. I mean, I was, I'm a little shaky right now, overwhelmed listening to all the prayers that are in this room. It's quite the spectrum of new homes and brothers in Iraq and friends dying. We have all of these things, and we carry all of these things with us. And we have these sacred moments on Sunday where sometimes we get to say it out loud in hopes that somebody will carry it along with us. But we bring all these things, and we wander, because sometimes it can be too much, and that heaviness that we carry in it so quickly can become that heaviness that we are. And we feel like there's no way that God's going to want us still. With all of these ghosts, all these things that haunt us. And that's not even thinking about the things that we've done wrong. But let's think tonight about the things that we've done wrong. Because I want to ask the question tonight about sin, stupidity. Sin is that which stunts our ability to experience human flourishing. Sin is that which stunts our ability to be healthy. It is outside of the aim of the ideal. For 2,000 years, much Christian tradition has taught us that God is handcuffed by holiness, that God is so holy that God cannot be with you and I who are hideous. There is a separation because of the sin that is present. So when sin is present, God is absent. That is the story that we have been told. Conveniently, for religion, it has been able to profit off of that story by stepping in and saying, while you are inherently broken and separated from God, we have a fix and a solution that can make it all right again. It's a one-two step. You go here, do this, say that, believe that, act this way and not that way, and we'll get you right where you need to be. 
Is that the true story, though? Are we inherently broken and expected still to be healthy and full? Are we born in the arms of love and we've never left that place? When people give you that take, when tradition tells you that there is separation from you and God, it does so off of a model of salvation that is based on Genesis 1 through 3. And so we're going to look at that text together, go back to the original scene of the crime. I read this book last week when we were up in Hibbing. Didn't read a whole book. Read a snippet of a book. I'm going to be honest with you. It was just a paragraph. It was maybe the cover. But there was a part in there where Bruce Springsteen said, I can tell how the next three hours of a show are going to go based upon how I walk out on the stage in the first minute. That's an interesting quote. Because what I want to do tonight is I want to think about how did human beings first walk out on the stage in the opening minutes? Because if we can get the beginning right, maybe we can make sense of the middle, and then we can understand where our aim is for the end. We're going to go to Genesis. Genesis, context, before we get to the original scene of the crime and looking specifically at Genesis 3. Genesis is, is a, a poetry. It is a parable. It is not a science book. We've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. It is poetic language laying out where did we come from and who are we called to be. And we have this in the opening stories where God scoops down and takes the dust of the earth into God's hands, breathes through his nostrils into the dust, and the dust starts to dance. The dust comes to life. We are made in the image of God. Prior to the scene of the crime in Genesis 3, you have Adam and you have Eve, and they are both fully beloved, fully united, connected with God, no questions asked. There is no separation in the beginning of the story. There was male and there was female, and they were made in the image of God. They were one. They know who they were, and they know whose they were. But then one day, the writers wrote, Eve went for a walk. And as Eve is strolling through the green pastures, there is a python around the corner that starts puffing out its chest and starts to say a few things. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals than the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, as you do, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You're not going to die, serpent said to the woman. For God knows what you don't know. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open. You will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. How many of you were raised in the church? Okay, quite a bit. If you were to ask me what this story is about, if I were to try to relate to you how this story actually unfolds without actually having the text open before me, I would have told you that you have Eve walking through the field and there is a snake that starts to speak. But what I would have told you is that when the snake starts to speak, the snake says something to her, tempts her with, the snake sees that she is hungry and says, Eve, right there, that tree, look at that gorgeous red apple. It's delicious. It would scratch that itch for you once and for all. Eve, you're starving. Do something about it. That's not what the story says. 
read the text in Genesis 3. The text says that when the serpent starts to talk to Eve, the snake doesn't tell the girl to look at the tree. The snake tells the girl to look at God. Isn't that interesting? When we think about the cracks in the wall, the mistakes that we've made, the wrong that we've done, the wounding that we've committed, you could trace it back to this moment right here, and I want to show you why. The snake doesn't point to the meal. The snake points to the maker. The snake doesn't tell her how great the tree is. The snake tells her how gullible she has been. Why? Because she fell for it. She got played. The snake says that God lied to you. What was the lie? That you are loved. That you are enough. The snake subverts the understanding of the relationship between the girl and God. And in doing so, she, she for the first time and since being created, it's called into question whether or not God is actually the lover. And if God is not the lover, then she is not the loved. And if she is not the loved, then she doesn't know how to look at life. She doesn't know what's out there. Everything she has ever had has been duped undercut, taken from her in this one split moment. This is, when we think about, you know, how we talk about the text in Genesis 3, you often hear people talking about the original sin, and I, and I get the inclination to do so, but let's talk about the original shame right here, because that's what precedes the sin. It's the snake getting to the girl and telling her that everything that you thought you had, it is emptiness, it is void, and what you need is not in you, it is out here on this tree. And she starts reaching. All of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of our departures from the ideal and our pathways towards health and healing, they are reaching for something that we forgot we already had. They're reaching for something that we forgot we already had. The snake tells the girl that if you eat from this tree, well, then you're going to be like God. What does Genesis 2 tell us about this girl? That she was made in the image of God. She already was like God. She already had the union. She already had the connection. She already had oneness with God. But the moment the snake can get in your ear and tell you that you are less than, that you've been duped, to fill you with shame instead of enoughness, shame instead of sufficiency, shame instead of confidence that you've been claimed, cracks and all, the moment that you get reached by a snake, of course you're going to go and reach for something you were never supposed to. I used to work at Treehouse, many of you know that. And as I read this text, I keep thinking about this girl, 14-year-old girl, 14 years old. And she was filling her weeks with sleeping with boys she did not know and running her finger down her mouth, throwing up bulimia, cutting her skin nightly, crying herself to sleep. And one night after Treehouse program, she told me how she went to her church pastor to tell him about these things in hopes that healing would be on the other side of that conversation. And the pastor looked at her and said, you got a problem with some sin issues here. These are clear infractions upon the rule. 
In other words, you cannot be reaching for these things. You need to stop. And when I sat with this girl, she told me about how the pastor was mad at her for reaching. But she said, why didn't the pastor ever ask me about what reached me first? Why did the pastor talk about what I was doing to my body, but not talk about what the snake said about my body when I was five? But not talk about the snake next door that touched me when I told him no. Eve, before she is the transgressor, she first is the transgressed. Before she is the reacher, she first is reached. What snake has gotten in your ears and emptied you of the truth of your own belovedness that replaced your significance, your substance, with separation? What snake got in your ear and told you that you are broken and crooked and corrupt and the only way through is if you do 25 steps in perfection without straying once and maybe then and only then will God look at you with good eyes? What snake reached you and where did you reach next to get right? This story, when we think about the genesis of our wanderings, of our strengths from health and wholeness. It starts in that place where we forget whose we are. And ultimately then we forget who we are. The text goes on to say that when Eve actually experienced this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and else desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Pause, when, that word when interchangeable with then. When, then, why, where, right after the snake spoke. She might have walked past that tree her entire life. Not once did she lick her lips when looking at that fruit. But when the snake said that you have nothing good going on in you, she started to see some good going on in that. Everything looks different when you can no longer see yourself as the beloved. Everything looks distorted when you no longer believe that you are enough. Everything gets out of whack when you forget whose you are, when you let the snake speak over your Savior. Eve, she forgot. She fell for the lie. The snake got to her. And like is the nature of sin and stupidity, at least in my experience, it always goes viral. It never is contained to one person. So, of course, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also took part in it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. You can stay on that last text real quick, please. It's interesting to me that in the definition of wholeness in the Bible that we have presented in Genesis 2, they said the whole and healthy person is the one who is naked and ashamed. Not naked and sinless, but naked and unashamed. Here, however, they have a realization of their nudity, and suddenly there is shame that takes place. And in response to the shame that has crept inside of their soul, they have to put some fig leaves on top of their skin. Coverings. Why do you cover up? Ask anybody who has been recently wounded why they get defensive, why they're spending more time alone, why they're not going out on dates as much anymore. They'll know the answer. If you've been deeply wounded, 
If you've had the floor ripped out from underneath you, it's not enough just to put on bandages. You need to put on some battle armor as well. Everybody becomes a threat. Get it out of here. I don't want to see it. Don't want to look at it. Keep it away. Cover me up. Hide me. I'm inadequate. I'm broken. And people can't see that. Can I talk about hitting one more time? Thanks. Appreciate it. It's really strange, you guys. One of the reasons that hibbing means so much to me, I mean, aside from the fact that my mom was raised there for eight years, my grandpa pastored a church there, but um, even more importantly, Bob Dylan was born there. Just kidding, Mom. That's equally important. That wasn't funny. It was just mean, Zane, wasn't it? It was dumb. I'll pay for that. What's interesting about it, though, is you have the world's greatest songwriter who was born and raised on those streets, lived there till he was 18 years old, young Robert Zimmerman, Hibbing High. And I'm telling you that because Hibbing probably won't. Not a lot of statues in Hibbing, Minnesota for Bob Dylan. You have a five-block stretch on 7th Avenue that tells you it's called Bob Dylan Drive, and that's about it. There is a little collection of artifacts in, in the library basement, but that's about it. Why? There was a lady who started a restaurant in the 70s called Zimmy's, named for Robert Simmons. She was from Philadelphia. She came in and she started to tell the people, you all need to understand, Bob Dylan is a very big deal in every part of the world except for Hibbing, Minnesota. Why is that? 1965, Bob Dylan sits down for a magazine interview and he says, I left that place and I'm never going back. Fast forward a few years, he writes his autobiography and he says he was born and raised in a small part of Illinois. You have people who are wounded in that city. They don't know how to talk about Bob Dylan. In fact, there's people who were interviewed by New York Times to ask him, what are your thoughts on your hometown hero? And they say, we don't like him. If he came back, wouldn't go to the concert. There's even rumors of a bar in town that will play knocking on heaven's door every hour, but only the Guns and Roses version. Isn't that tragic? You have people who have wounded have been wounded. And at the risk of coming in contact with that idea, opening that wound up one more time, let's shut down. And the tragedy is that they miss the beauty of the music. They're missing the greatest songs that have ever come out because they covered themselves out. Back to our original question, though, the idea of does sin separate us from God? If that model is true, if it actually stands up, if tradition is telling the truth, then what should happen here is that because these two reached for a fruit that they were told not to reach for, ultimately, God should run in the other direction. That's not what happens, though. What happens next, Patty? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. Next, next text. Actually, you can go back. That's fine. You don't have the one in there. That's, that's on me, Patty. Patty, don't take that personally. That's me. This one's on me. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it, though. We can stop there. The idea of hiding, though, the idea of, like, that is what we do, right? When you have a sense that you are bad and God is coming your way, if God already inherently sees you as bad and you do something even worse, if you are already a transgressor and then you double down on your sin, do you actually think you're going to be psyched to see God? Of course not. And so they hide. 
And yet when God starts to speak, they come out. Why is that? Why is that? Isn't it amazing when you think about all the texts and all the stories we have in Scripture, there is so much theology that can be found in tone alone. Is God walking through this garden screaming, where are you? Or is he a wounded mother looking for his children, saying, where are you? Where did you go? You didn't think that that bite of that apple would disqualify your relationship with me, did it? God walks in the cool of the garden while the two are tangled up in the trees. And like a good therapist, he pulls up short and he just asks the question, where are you? Do you think God's on a fact-finding mission here? No. He knows that there are some places that people get lost in that only then can actually untangle themselves from. It's the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal who, when he comes to himself and realizes he needs to make a U-turn and go back home, he doesn't have this moment where he runs into an angel on the road. He doesn't have a moment where he goes to a church service and it breaks him down and he's convicted and he goes, I got to go back to dad. No, it says in the text that the prodigal comes to himself. Salvation is always this circular journey. It is always about remembering whose you are. And so that question there that God calls out to the men or the man and the women who are tangled up in the trees, where are you? And Adam goes on to say that uh, we heard you and we started to hide. And when they ask him, why are you hiding? They say, because we're naked. Tone again, you can hear God's heart breaking into 10,000 pieces when he asks him, who told you that you were naked? What snake stole you from me? What lie replaced my love? Who told you that you were naked? God goes looking for them. Please hear this story if you hear nothing else tonight. Adam and Eve, they are sinless and God comes. Adam and Eve, they are sinless and God comes. Adam and Eve, they are sinless and God comes. Adam and Eve sin and God still came. Again and again, God still comes looking for his lost children. Heart in hand, asking where are you and what snake got to you first? God walks through your open house, sees the dust piled up in the corner, sees the cracks on the wall, sees the floors that Ryan Corcoran messed up, and God says, I'll take it. It's good. But will we let ourselves be taken by God? As the story goes, God calls them out. And you can picture it in your mind, these two walking out with their fig leaves wrapped around their bodies. And for those of us who raised in the church, we might expect God to lay a heavy hammer down on them. But instead we get this image of God getting down on God's knees and one by one plucking off the fig leaves. Taking it all away. All the battle armor, all the decor, all the trophies, all the badges, all the ways that we try to keep our wounds hidden, 
all the facades that we present, God strips it down and says, before you ever put on makeup, before you ever earned that job, before you ever found that spouse, before she said yes, before he gave you that, before any of that, you were mine and that was enough. You were mine. But as he takes the fig leaves off of them, they are standing there naked and for the first time they feel shame. And so the text says that God wraps garments of skin for Adam and his wife to be clothed in. I want to end just here because I realize I'm going too long now. I wrote this down years ago. And I wrote it for people like me before we ever started a church or anything like that. But those who have wandered far off the path, those who have more cracks than compelling reasons for people to buy into you, those who have more struggles than stories of success, those who have some battle scars. I remember sitting down and asking if there was a gospel that was true, if there was good news, what would that good news be? And I found this, I think, in cleaning our house even just this past week. And I just want to read it to you. If then there is a gospel, if then there is good news, there is a story of salvation, there is a savior in the saved, and that good news is to proclaim to every woman and man, boy and girl, every elder brother who stayed home next to the father's side, and every prodigal son who walked wildly into the woods, every prodigal girl who ran far away, Every prodigal girl who stayed home to sing in the choir, that they are loved and that their life is in that love. If then there is a gospel, it is to proclaim that to them that they were and always have been and always will be the beloved of God, never separate, always close, always claimed. Tell those people that if there is a salvation, it is that they might understand that they were born in the arms of a lover that has not stopped walking in the garden even when they were hiding in the trees. Tell them that they were, have been, and always will be safe in the presence of God. And tell them to come home. Tell them that their prodigal journey has not cost them their identity as children of God. Tell them that nothing that they could ever do could undo God's love for them. Tell them that God is not angry. Tell them that they are accepted and celebrated. Tell them salvation is not becoming something that they aren't, but awakening to the truth of who they've always been and who they will always be. If there is, if then there is a gospel, tell them to come home. Tell them that if there is salvation, that it is in them becoming again like a little child. Not the nine-year-old who thinks that she's ugly. Not the ten-year-old who believes that he's dumb. The four-year-old who danced naked and unashamed. A few cracks will not cancel out the purchase agreement. God is for you. God is with you. And healthy spirituality begins in rooting ourselves in our beloved truth and choosing to never stray from it. Will you pray with me? Christ. 
Christ, you are good. In the same way, Lord, where the Father spoke over you when you went into the waters of Jordan, you speak over every person that's in this room tonight, that this is your son, this is your daughter, beloved of God, in whom you are well pleased. Jesus, we know that as we think about your life, what makes you unique, what makes you special is not the water that you walked on. It's not the sermons that you gave. It's not even the cross that you took for us. What makes you special is that you heard the voice of God say that you were loved and you had the courage to actually believe it. God, give us that same courage. Amidst all the things we carry, Lord, remind us again and again that we are being carried by you and that that's enough. In Christ's name, we all pray together. Amen. We live in a broken world and we are all broken and wounded people and we all have experiences and voices that tell us that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy of that love. Experiences and voices that chip away at that belovedness. But we, we follow a God who meets us where we are, who loves us as is, who puts his arms around us, cracks and wounds, and brokenness, and he holds us, and he stands with us, and he promises us that over and over and over again. I will be with you always, and there's no but in that. When we come together on Sunday nights, we share in communion, and I was thinking while Matt was talking that this is a moment that we can pause, and we can push those voices and those experiences and those lies away and we can pause and we can remember that God is the lover and that we're the loved. We are the beloved children of God. And so when you come forward and you take that bread and you dip it into the cup, you can remember that because we need the reminders we need to remember. We need to pause and hear that truth. And we can do that when we share in communion. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his friends, his disciples, his beloved, those broken people. And he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you when you eat this. Remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said this is my blood shed for you when you drink from the cup remember me and so we invite you to come forward during the music and gluten free elements will be here and there will be bread and juice on the sides as well and we can remember that we are the beloved of God so stand, and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. 
not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power.